0: I'm Whitney, I'm Danielle, and we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your
1: thoughts into things and manifesting your reality.
0: We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the
1: world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn
0: our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. We're so excited to have Vanessa Cornell on the podcast today. She, I will say, has a very interesting background and is in very interesting work that I don't think Whitney and I could explain well here in her intro i think you have to listen to the podcast to really understand what she does but i will say from experiencing her events that she throws here in new york there is a magic to the way she gathers people i think that she's really good at holding space
1: yeah she is a listener she's a mother she's a giver and i think that that really allows her to create a space for intimacy for vulnerability, and you can feel that energy in her sessions, in her events. And so I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today to be talking more about this. We have been doing our own women's circles for lots of years, and it's made such a huge impact on our lives in having creating deep friendships, in just thinking through thoughts and and problems and situations in my own life. And being able to think about life from the feminine perspective and being able to stand in my own feminine power. Um, So I'm looking forward to her bringing this to more people and, and talking about what she's doing more broadly. Vanessa is the founder of the New Shoe Society, a women's membership community grounded in wellness and empowerment based in New York. She is an active philanthropist serving on the Leadership Council of Mount Sinai Children's Health and Development Institute on the board of New Yorkers for Children and is involved in women's alumni initiatives at her alma mater's St. Paul's School and Harvard College. Prior to entering the world of wellness, Vanessa worked at Goldman Sachs in the Real Estate Private Equity Group and for Andre Balazs, helping to finance hotels such as The Standard. She and her husband, Henry, have five children and together run Cornell Vineyards, a family vineyard in Sonoma County, California. Vanessa's current mission is to facilitate connection and healing for women by hosting intimate gatherings she calls Nushu Group. We're so excited to discuss Vanessa's plans for making women's circles more widely accessible. Please welcome Vanessa Cornell.
0: Vanessa, we are so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So we start off by asking everyone what your mission is. What is your
2: kind of reason that you feel like you are here on Earth? What is your mission? Yeah, I, th- I think that I stumbled upon an idea that is an old idea. I think there are no new ideas, right? But I stumbled upon something that was unexpected and that really fired my imagination, which is that in our current model of healing, we think of hierarchy, We think of a therapist healing a patient. We think of salvation being imparted by a priest or someone religious. We think of a guru or a teacher or a healer imparting healing. And what I've discovered is in group, there's a possibility of co-healing that happens where each participant can sit in the seat of the healer and the healed simultaneously. And that We've been sitting in groups since the beginning of time, right? I haven't discovered anything new, but I feel like we've forgotten. And so I feel like my mission is to help people remember and to help bring this as a modality back into the mainstream. I feel that it's the most underutilized and yet most potent modality that I've seen. And so my mission is to create accessibility and education around the healing power of group and to make it accessible to as many people as I can. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. Beautiful mission. And what is it about being in a group? Like what is it? Is it the energy we share? Is it the shared intention? Like, What is exactly healing and
2: how can you sit in both seats in group versus by yourself? Sure. I think one of the things that happens in group is that exchange of energy. But I think one of the most important things that I try to foster in group is, A, a sense of permission. Where can you go and share what's in your heart and on your mind? Can you sit next to someone at a dinner party who's a stranger who says, how are you, and say anything other than the socially acceptable, I'm fine? Can you say, actually, my life is really tough right now? I feel disconnected from my husband. I'm completely overwhelmed. I have this pit in my stomach that makes me feel that I'm unsatisfied and I don't know why. I should be grateful because there are so many good things in my life, and I am. But there's something wrong and I don't know what it is. There are no sort of socially sanctioned places to say this other than maybe to your therapist Mm -hmm. or your healer. And so group is first and foremost a place of permission, a place where everyone has come together and said – This is the place where those thoughts are allowed. This is the place where those feelings are allowed. And every feeling is allowed, not just the good ones. Mm -hmm. Also the bad ones. Also the dark ones.
1: And so you're starting to facilitate these groups. Yeah. And can you explain to us a little bit about what that looks like? Is there a therapist involved? Is this
2: Mm -hmm. like group therapy? Or what does it look like? Sure. It's definitely not group therapy because I'm facilitating them and I'm not a therapist. Mm -hmm. And... So one of the things I tell people in group is there's no agenda. There's no outcome. This is not linear. This is not a workshopping people's problems. This is not brainstorming solutions. You can say something that's on your mind that's difficult for you right now and say it out loud and be witnessed and seen, and we don't need to solve it. We don't need to fix it. And it's just the act of saying something out loud that I believe can be a deep catalyst for change. Taking something that's been swirling in your head that you've been living with by yourself and putting it out, taking maybe a secret or shame that's been living inside your body and bringing it to the light. That's the catalyst for change. So it's not, the th- it's not therapy in the sense that there's something off with you or missing with you or something that needs to be fixed that we're going to fix. It's simply a forum for people to speak their truths out loud.
0: It's holding space.
2: It's exactly what it is.
0: I feel like I didn't really understand what holding space meant until I gave birth and mm. had a doula. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, Whitney and I have been sitting in in circles for many years with women's circles, women's circles, friends, yeah. yeah. Sisters, and you know, a, a huge part of it is making sure you just listen. It's exactly what you said. You don't give advice. You don't fix. But the the doula, and now it, it's so interesting because I'm seeing more and more doulas coming out to help people in other parts of life, mm-hmm. and I love that. And I feel like what you're saying is we deserve to have space held throughout our lives, not just at birth or death or, you know, in the moments, the, the hardest moments of life, but all throughout as well.
2: Absolutely. And, and I think what you mentioned about just listening is really interesting. Part of what I do as a facilitator is to help people understand what it means to hold space, because it's not immediately obvious to everyone. So one of the aspects of holding space is not fixing. And being aware of your desire to fix, I always say, fixing is for the fixie fixer not the fixie so, so true what is your instinct to add a comment make a suggestion and so there are exercises you can do to create some self-awareness are you trying to give advice for the other person or are you doing it for your own benefit and so listening is also an important aspect of that we do an exercise where there is a prompt and each person speaks for three minutes and the other person who listens, this is done in pairs, says nothing. The point of the exercise is not to torture the person into saying nothing or that they have nothing to add, but to give a self-awareness to that person of when do you feel the need to say something and why. There's a beautiful quote from Thich Han: listen with the sole purpose of allowing someone to open their heart and empty their heart. Mm-hmm. And so the facilitation of group is about Creating an awareness for people of themselves, where they feel the need to fix, why they feel the need to fix, and setting some guidelines and boundaries for people to be in the space of permission to develop a sense of trust in each other.
0: And it really ties back to what you were saying where you are the healer and the healed simultaneously because it's such an act of selflessness to sit. And just listen, and you probably come up against some of your walls, some of your beliefs, and so therefore you're working to be healed, not just healing.
2: Absolutely, and I think one of the most powerful examples of sitting in the seat of the healer and the healed simultaneously is when someone has the courage to say, My life looks perfect from the outside, but let me tell you what's really happening. Let me tell you my fears. Let me tell you my worries. And I come home to my children and I love them, but I feel just so overwhelmed that I can't take care of them. Or I am appreciative of what I have, but it just doesn't feel like enough. And there's someone across the room listening to that saying, wow, I feel the same way. I've never had the courage to say it out loud. And so when you're saying it out loud... You're releasing something and you're healing yourself. And you're also in a very powerful position to help other people. So I will say to people sometimes the most powerful person in the room is the one who thinks she's the biggest hot mess because she might be able to give someone else permission. She might be able to make someone else feel like, wow, I'm not alone in that thought. And I thought I was. And the dynamic when group is being facilitated is very interesting because the group takes on a life of its own the group is a living breathing thing that is a collection of everyone's willingness to show up with an open heart and it's an extraordinary thing to witness so one of the things that i discovered when i started facilitating was first of all i was terrified who am i to be facilitating group I don't have any qualifications. I don't have a certification. I'm not a psychologist. And I realized that it was really about intention, about having the right intention. And yes, developing some skills that I learned from others who have a lot of experience facilitating group. But I'm a prime example of someone who had the intention and learned something and was able to do this. It's so accessible to so many people, and yet it's not being practiced widely. I think it's less mainstream and it's less accessible than it should be. And it's a tremendous opportunity for anybody to sit in a place of deep human connection where the barriers to getting there are systematically dropped or, you know, framed in a certain way that it becomes an easy place for people to experience opening their heart and creating Mm -hmm. connection with others.
0: And can you talk a little bit about how you got here, how you
2: created New Shoe, and why? Sure. So this came out of a personal need, as so many of these things do. I was a really perfect child. I was really good at meeting other people's expectations. I was emotionally closed. And I was raised in a loving household where feelings weren't expressed very readily. I went through my school, school life and job and got married and had five children. We were just chatting about this. <laughs> I had five children in six years and was pregnant, breastfeeding or both for eight years straight. Wow! And at the end of that, I had been holding on to this stoic, don't complain, get everything done, put my needs last mantra for so long that I had a really serious breakdown and it was in that breakdown that I discovered that I had all of the things on paper that someone would want for a happy life, but I was desperately and deeply lonely, and even though I had all of the things, it's not enough, so if you're striving to get all the things and you think that's going to make you happy, don't waste your energy, it's not, and I realized that even though I had lots of people around me, I was lonely and disconnected, and I was deeply disconnected from myself as well. And so I I say that I started a sort of mini university for myself where I brought people in to learn about ideas of self-awareness and self-discovery and personal growth. And that's what I did for a while. And in order to bring people into that fold, I realized that I had to do two things. One was to go and find the most potent teachers with deepest integrity and find ideas and practices that I resonated with. But the second was that I had to create a container of trust that people would be able to experience these ideas in. And in the creation of the container of trust, I realized that that was the thing that was the most potent and powerful. The teachers are potent. The teachers are powerful. The ideas are powerful. But that container of trust was the most unique and powerful thing I did. And so I decided, let's distill that to its purest form. What is the purest form of that? And I started the first Nushu group. I brought a couple of people together and said, let's just try and do this thing. Let's just create a space of permission. Let's create a contract of trust between each other. And just no teachings, no no practices, no ideas, no lecturer, no expert. Let's just create the space for each other. And So Nushu Group began, and I expanded it, and I offered it to different people. And I'm still learning and growing. And it really resonated. People came. They didn't know what to expect. They were a little nervous. And afterwards, the overwhelming response has been, I have no place for this in my life, and I want more of it in my life. And so I realized that this was really the place of biggest impact. And this was what I wanted to pour my heart and soul into. And so that's what I've been doing.
1: And do you think it's that people are craving this level of intimacy that when you are in that space and you become so vulnerable that you're able to create like deep relationships with people, even strangers, just sitting in that room together?
2: It's absolutely what it is. I I think the desire for deep human connection is a force as strong as gravity. There's a reason that solitary confinement is the worst possible punishment. There's a reason that when babies aren't held, they perish. We all need this. And yet there was a study recently that came out where 47% of people self-identified as not having a single person they felt close to. So whereas I think it's the most basic human need, the what I would call epidemic of loneliness is growing. And we can talk about all the reasons why and technology and you know, social and lack of religion. There are a lot of things that contribute to this, but the need is still the same. But there aren't a lot of places of permission where this is allowed, supported, structured. And I have a friend who was in AA, and she's been in for 20 years and she has no issue with substances, but she still goes.
1: I've because been to it's an a AA place. meeting before, yeah, not for any specific reason other yeah. than that I had the opportunity to attend, yeah, and so I went, and it is very much like sitting in circle or sitting in group. It is, and a container you, of trust. It is a container mm-hmm. of trust, and it has a specific, it has a certain ritual to it, like a, yeah. a series of events. So you feel safe within that because you know exactly what is going to happen and you are given a specific time to be open so it's it's not that you're just you know how are you doing danielle and then you know spilling all of your emotions it's a specific time dedicated to that
2: right and so much of the structure of what i'm doing in facilitation and trying to help others learn how to facilitate is taking all of these different models learning from them understanding what steps do you need to take for people to feel safe, what tools can you use, and creating a toolbox of best practices to help other people facilitate, because a lot of people are capable of it. But they need a bit of a roadmap. They need a bit of a guide. And if I'm spending, you know, all my waking hours thinking about this and compiling and reading, I was sitting at the dining table reading all these books about AA, all the AA books, and my husband said to me, Is there something I should know? (laughs) (laughs) I said, No, there's no issue. But I'm learning from all of these different models. And I joked with someone the other day, I think I'm trying to create the AA for loneliness Mm. that You don't have to have a substance abuse problem to be able to access this type of environment where you can have deep connection with other people. Everyone wants it. Everyone deserves it. And it needs to be more accessible.
1: And many people believe that addiction often comes from pain, a place of pain and needing to be healed. And I think that's something everybody can relate to, feeling some sort of pain from childhood or loneliness or whatever it might be. And so we can use these tools and rituals to help
2: us heal. I recently did a group with 12 women, and at the end I asked them to reflect on what surprised them, what they learned, just their reactions. And one of the women said, it was incredible because in the beginning I wouldn't have thought so, but I realized at the end that we're all suffering. Everyone has something that they're going through. And you might not know that when you first meet somebody. You might assume they can't possibly have a deep, dark secret or something that's really weighing on them. And once everybody had shared, and, and I made sure to point out there's no hierarchy of suffering, you know? Don't judge your share. Just because somebody reveals something deeply difficult doesn't mean that your exhaustion is less important. I think that she saw the people in the group of, in a very different way, and she saw her relationship with them in a very different way, in the sense that everyone is suffering, I have more compassion, and everyone is suffering, I feel less alone.
0: And do you think there's a difference between gathering women versus men? And in your work, do you focus on
2: women? I focus on women. And people have asked me, why not focus on men? And I say, well, I have a pretty ambitious mission, and maybe in my next life, if I come back as a man, I'll focus (laughs) on men. I mean, which is not to say that I wouldn't eventually like this to be available to men, and actually I'm offering groups that are not just for women. I think that men have even less permission than women to enter into this space. I think that as a facilitator, when you can relate to what is going on with the other people, it makes it easier. And so a lot of the women in my groups are similar age, similar place in their life. Although, again, we just had a group and it ranged from women in their 20s to women in their 60s. And all of the women remarked how that cross-generational exchange was really wonderful, that they could completely relate to the women in the different phases in their lives, completely dis- different issues in their lives, but still on a human level, could see their suffering, have compassion for it and learn from it. So I would love to be able to offer this to men because you hear a lot about women's circles, but there, there are people, by the way, doing this work with men. Yep. But there is very little opportunity for men to participate in this. And I think that really speaks to the facilitator, in my mind, if this were to expand, understanding what his or her community needs. Mm-hmm. So I cannot presume to facilitate a group for people who have a completely different lived experience than I have. And what I'm hoping to do is to empower people to gather their communities So if I can empower someone with tools, with best practices, with what I've learned, with structure, to do it for their community, the man could take my tools and say, this one, this one, this one, that one doesn't work for me. That one's not really relevant. And so I think that what I'm hoping to do is create a model of empowerment so that people, facilitators, can step into their own understanding, intuition, power about what's needed and feel that there's no prescription for this.
0: And that kind of is like the fundamentals of New Shoe Group, right? Is you being able to bring this to people to facilitate their own circles.
2: Exactly. And I think that the the whole ethos is of non-authority, right? Mm-hmm. It's decentralized. I am providing a tool. I'm providing the sort of impetus maybe behind you feeling that you have enough of a structure and enough tools to be able to do this yourself. But I could never presume to tell you what your community needs, what you need. That's that's your job. And that's what I hope to empower you to do. And so it is really, again, even at this layer about the collective power of each facilitator, the collective power of each individual in the group. And I'm just a container holder. That's what I've always been. And so in this next phase, that's what I'm going to continue to be. I
0: love that. And you know, you've talked a lot about how we can't talk about our feelings or it's Mm. not socially acceptable. How did we get here? Why why, why is that the case?
2: I've spent a lot of time looking at my own self-limiting beliefs and I think that We all share a lot of self-limiting beliefs. And one of the ones that I really had and many others have is if I reveal myself, if I show you all parts of me, the good and the bad, you will judge me and love me less. Mm -hmm. I am afraid that if I show you who I really am, you will no longer accept me and love me. What I discovered in my life is it's exactly 180 degrees the opposite. So when I held everything in and I was a very private and closed person, I had relationships, but they were distant. I never revealed myself to anyone. I never confided in anyone. And once I started confiding, once I started telling the truth, the good truth and the ugly truth, what I perceived as the ugly truth, all of my relationships changed. I became close, intimately close with people with whom I had had an acquaintanceship or a distant relationship in a very short period of time. And so that's a a belief that so many of us hold implicitly. We might not think about it consciously every day, but it is a fear that we have. And so what I hope to provide in group is an opportunity to test it out in a place of safety, to try it out and say, give it a chance. Say something that you probably wouldn't share with strangers. And because we've all agreed to receive each other with love and compassion and non-judgment, see what it feels like to put it out there and see what the reaction is. It's amazing how people will sometimes say things that they have such deep shame about. And when they finally say it out loud, they think... Oh, It wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. (laughs) Bad, I always say the first time is the hardest time. And Mm -hmm. it gets easier and easier and easier to just tell the truth, be who you are, share who you are. And the rewards are tremendous.
1: We used to see this astrologer, something that he used to always say was that when you have your shit and you put it in the closet and you cover it all up with clothes and you close the doors and you hide it, then it starts to fester and it starts mm-hmm. to stink and it attracts flies and it's gross. But if you can open up the doors and bring it out into the middle of the room and uncover it and open up the windows and air it out, then it doesn't start to stink so much anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that that's something that really stuck with me over the years of, yeah, when you have this feeling of shame, or guilt, or secrets, or whatever it is, and you keep it inside, it can really fester. Mm -hmm. But when you have that opportunity to talk about it,
2: then Maybe it's not so stinky after all. And, and, and you know, I, I think I need to use your astrologer's metaphor because it's much better than mine. I usually just say, you know, secrets get their power from being hidden and shame cannot survive being spoken out loud. But I like the festering and the, the flies <laughs> the <mental laughs> image. <And> the <laughs> mental image. I think it's more. It doesn't leave your brain. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, unfortunately. It's stickier, so I might have to borrow <laughs> it from him. But what I started doing was uncovering all of my lies Mm -hmm. systematically. Yeah, that was gonna be my question was, Mm. um, what if you don't know?
0: Like what if you've spent so much time covering it up that you don't even know that your shit's in the closet?
2: Yeah, so, so the first step is just to become aware and just to look, right? I mean, the first thing is literally to peek through the crack of the door at the shit in the closet. And if you are dedicated to looking with honesty, the more you look, the more you see. And so there is no quick fix, right? You can't decide from one day to the next, I'm going to stop lying and pull all my shit out of the closet. You just have to look. Huh, I'm thinking this thing in my head. Have I ever shared this with anybody? I don't think so. Why haven't I shared it with anybody? What's underneath it? Oh, oh, there's the shame. I see. Okay. What can I do? All right, maybe I'll share this with someone I trust. Or maybe I'll just say it out loud to myself and acknowledge that it's there. Because I think that the exercise in group is about being able to say something and being witnessed with love and compassion. And the goal is not to hide all your shit and then come to group and then share it in group,
1: (laughs) right? That's not
2: the goal, right? This is the only place you're allowed to share stuff out loud in group. No, that's not the goal. It's a place where you can really push your boundary, where you can really experiment with it so that you can bring that sensibility back into your life. And you can, with discernment to people you trust, start to become more open. And then eventually, I think the goal is to have a little group in your mind where you say, I have this feeling of shame and judgment And I can say it to myself, and I can receive it myself with love and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a a vehicle to bring you from a place of, I don't even know where my stuff is, to, oh, I see it. I see the lie. Mm -hmm. I recognize the lie. And I look back and I was a liar. I mean, I was lying to myself, and I don't. I don't think and I'm that's not a talking strong about word where people yeah, can think like a Jane. lie is no is something that you're doing intentionally, right? Like, right. Absolutely. Problems. And I I distinguish and I and I actually I always caveat this by saying this is language I use with myself, but I don't use it with others because mm-hmm. I know how I take it. I'm not talking about malicious lies right. meant to deceive. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about even the little lies where. When somebody says to you, "Oh, can you do this for me?" and you know you don't have the bandwidth and you don't want to, and you do it anyway, it's a lie. It's not aligned with your truth. I say I see lie as anything that's not truth. And so, when I would discover little lies in myself, I would go find someone to tell. <laughs> you know those poor people. I'd call them. I'd say, "I've got to tell you something," because for me, the practice was bring it out, bring it out, bring it out over and over. And so again, I wouldn't say that that's the way that everybody should approach it. It's just the way that I've approached it and what's worked for me and my really aggressive, persistent rooting out of my own lies to get closer to my own truth. But the first step is really just to see it, just to notice. The first step for everything is just to see it and notice. Mm -hmm. And if the action beyond the noticing feels like too much, well, that's okay. You noticed. That's a big deal. Yeah.
0: I think even being in the seat of holding space can help you witness where you might be not aligned with your truth or lying to yourself. Even when you were talking about, you know, holding space, being able to receive what somebody else is telling you with love and compassion instead of the need to fix and then searching within yourself to say, well, where does this desire to say this to this person come from? And really working through those lies. I don't know if you've heard of nonviolent communication. I, I've heard of it. I'm not familiar with it, but I've I, heard of it. I read it like many years ago, so I can't say it kind of in his words. But it's basically a, a modality of using language so that you take responsibility for yourself, yeah. for your feelings, for your actions. Where oftentimes, at least in the English language, you can place blame and you can say, you made me feel this way. Mm -hmm. And so it's a practice of saying, I feel sad when this happens, because, 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 because. And and you relate it back to yourself. Instead of saying, you make me feel sad, it's I feel sad when this happens. And yes, you might be a part of that, but I'm taking responsibility for, for how I feel. And I feel like that's almost similar to this idea of like holding space for yourself.
2: And what I realized, and I actually literally just realized this this morning coming over, was that whereas I thought group was really about Finding deep connection with other human beings, this thing we crave that we don't have a lot of access to, or there are barriers to access to. But I realized it's also a place of finding deep connection to yourself, and that that relationship in my life was probably the most fractured and the least intimate. And so I love what you're saying, Danielle, about the fact that when you hold space, you're also doing a lot of inner work. When you're, when you're trying to be there for others, a lot of your own things come up that you have to deal with and wrestle with and you're motivated to because your intention is to show up for others mm. and you end up also showing up for yourself.
1: I think that's really interesting because when we sit in circle, there's a certain kind of ceremonial aspect to it where like in AA – There's a process to it Mm. and a a sequence of events, and we know what to do. And it gives us some sort of structure to the activity and to sharing and opening up. But I don't have anything like that in my own life for my own personal ritual on the day-to-day, a series of events or something to get me to that same place where I like what you're talking about with that. It's
2: not just about the connection to others, but about this connection to yourself. It's really interesting because in group, we have a series of group guidelines that are really an agreement that people make with each other. And in making those agreements, we also talk through those agreements and what they mean. What does it mean to not fix? What does it mean to not judge? What does it mean to not presume your judgment of me? To not presume that this thing that I'm capable of doing, of not judging you, to not say, I can do it. I cannot judge you, but I don't think you can do it for me. I don't think Mm -hmm. you're capable of it. So when you presume others' judgment of you, what are you saying about them? And to take that leap of faith that you too are as capable of doing it as I am. And so we talk through each of those guidelines to help understand the framework. But I love this idea, Whitney, of creating that for yourself, a real agreement with yourself of how you're going to hold yourself in that space. It's not something mm-hmm. I'd ever thought about before, but it's a really well, interesting idea. It,
1: how do I sit in group mm-hmm. by myself every day? Right? Because I think you know, we've developed extremely close friendships with the women we sit in circle with and you know, we've created these incredibly intimate relationships with these women that we sit in circle with. And the times that we don't sit in circle on a regular basis, I, I feel that bit of loneliness mm-hmm. and I feel that need for connection, intimacy, and ritual. But thinking about it, like, how can I have some form of ritual on my day to day basis just on my
2: own? Like, is there a way to sit in group by yourself? Yeah, I think it's a really, really potent question. And it's a practice that I think each of us does a little bit, but it's not ritualized and it's not formalized. I remember the moment when I was actually lying on someone's table and she was holding my head, right, a healer, she was holding my head. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, no one ever holds me. (laughs) I hold a lot of people, no one ever holds me. And then I had this tremendous feeling of deep loneliness. I'd done all this work to stop from being lonely, and it came full circle. And I thought, oh, I'm just, I'm on my own. And I was panicked in that moment. And then it shifted, and I recognized that there was a different relationship that was holding me up and everyone has their own belief system, and this is mine, that there was a relationship to source or God or whatever you like to use as your word. I like to use truth, frankly, as my word, but there was that relationship that was going to hold me up, and that's the only one I really needed. Now, that's not true. Of course, I need human relationships, and I have wonderful ones, and I value my friends and my family. But in that moment of deep loneliness, I realized Oh, it's only me. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. At the end of the day, it's only me. And cultivating that relationship to myself was going to be the most important thing that I ever did. And everything I do centers around that.
0: I was noticing kind of some of our language since we started, and it can easily start to sound somewhat religious, mm-hmm. which I personally feel is important so when i sit in circle with sisters i feel a connection to spirit I f- it feels religious but do you ever come across people that that makes them kind of nervous or they have this idea of what religion is and it's going to church and it's god mm-hmm. or whatever it might be for them and therefore this is kind of
2: cheating on that mm-hmm. kind of view of, of life definitely and i think about language a lot and the implications of language. And so there's language like God and Jesus and salvation that makes people understand one type of spirituality and then frankly there's language like universe and spirit and you know other types of language that makes people think of another group of people and another type of spirituality and a buy-in and so for me it's really important in developing this that the language is neutral of those things because again those things can make people feel excluded They can make people feel that there's a belief system that they're being asked to believe in, which is not the case. I have a belief system. You know, I'm entitled to mine, but I have no presumption that anyone else should have my belief system. Everyone's entitled to have their own. And so, again, it's a real empowerment of a facilitator to use the language that resonates with their group, that resonates with them. And there is no prescribed framework for spirituality within this. It can be simply a place for people to go and unburden the thoughts of the day. It doesn't have to be spiritual. And I divorce my personal life, personal journey, and I'm not afraid to tell people about what I believe and what framework for understanding I like to use. But again, that does not translate into me thinking that anyone else should use that framework for understanding. And so everyone gets to choose what they want to do. Everyone gets to choose what they believe. And the forum of holding space with a group of people doesn't have to fit into any of those molds. It's more basic. It's just human. So I like taking people to the edge of their comfort zone, but I think for a lot of people, sharing something with a group of strangers is way towards the edge of their comfort zone. And so my goal is to do everything I can to make everything else as comfortable as possible. So not expecting people to do things that they're not used to, not expecting people to do anything other than show up, listen, agree, and say something out loud. That's important. It's always possible to pass. No one has to share. Everyone gets to choose. But it's important for people to open their voice and say something out loud. So I'll invite people to simply introduce themselves, share their intention for being there, which can be anything, it can be curiosity. And then if people choose not to share, it's totally okay. And so I think the only thing that I think is important, everyone has to say something out loud. Mm
1: -hmm. And do your groups, are are they the same groups each time or is it new people in the group?
2: So I've done an ongoing group that meets every two weeks for two hours for a couple of months now. And that group is wonderful and has really developed a tremendous level of trust. But I've also done... A number of one-off groups where it's a group of total strangers that come together for two hours and those are as impactful, as wonderful as the others. So I think that there isn't one magic format. I think that it can be accessed in many different ways depending on what people are interested in, how people are interested in entering. I do think that the one-off two-hour group, I really have done to introduce people to the idea and the concept. It's difficult to explain. It's much more powerful to have a lived experience of it. Mm-hmm.
0: And how do you think it manifests in life? So, you know, I sit through circle. I air out my, my shit, mm-hmm. as Whitney said. And, you know, how does, how, how does that manifest in my, in my everyday
2: So I mentioned before that I believe that saying something out loud is a really potent catalyst. And sometimes when I first introduced that idea, I think I got a lot of blank stares. You know, what does it mean to just say something out loud, not figure it out, and not do anything about it? And in this initial group I mentioned that meets regularly, a couple of sessions in, someone said, you know, you said that thing about saying something out loud, and I didn't really get it. But now I get it because that thing that I aired two months ago has completely shifted in my life. My attitude towards it is different. Other people are different. And everything started to move and shift. And I feel empowered to say something now that I didn't before. So I think it's not a linear, direct, causal relationship. It's more about what does it do to you as a human being where you take the things that are hidden in the shadows and you bring them out. What does it change about your attitude towards them, your level of shame, your ability to do something, your ability to stand up for yourself? So it's all of those little shifts that are almost invisible, but I believe are really powerful.
0: When I hear that, I hear the opportunity to create boundaries for yourself. You know, because if you notice, one of your examples was... Um, Somebody asks you to do something and you say yes, even though you don't really feel like you have the bandwidth. And I think especially as women, we're often compelled to not create boundaries or if we've created them to not listen to them. And if we can spend the time to notice where we're lying to ourselves in circle, Mm
2: -hmm. then maybe it can help us outside. A lot of the women that I've been in, in group with, will say things like, I really, next year, my New Year's resolution is to spend more time doing the things I care about and less time doing the things that are unimportant. And my response is always, what do you care about? And they'll say, I'm not sure. It's even one step back from boundaries. Mm. Who am I? What do I care about? What do I like? (laughs) What do I not like? What do I enjoy? What makes me feel more like myself? And it's that sort of rediscovery of who am I? What do I care about? That makes the no really easy. I should say no to this. If it's a should, it's definitely not (laughs) empowered. It's an easy no because it's just not who I am and it's not where I want to spend my energy and it's not what I'm passionate about Mm. and it's not what I care about. And so the real work is not in the I need to make different decisions. The real work is in I need to discover who I am and what I care about and where my voice is and where my center is. And that is tough work, particularly for the women I know who have been, for many of them, mothers and caregivers, where they've taken their needs and their wants and put them in a box and put a padlock around it and you know thrown it to the depths of the ocean in service of being the best mother they can be, being the best wife they can be, being the best employee they can be. And so, so much of the work is about taking that box out and opening it and discovering who that is. And then the boundaries become easy. Not easy, sorry.
0: <laughs> well, it's a, really not fair to say a, easy. It becomes a force function though, is what yes, I hear you saying, is yeah. that it's you have such clarity that it's so clear
2: what is serving you versus what's not. It comes from a different place. Yeah. It comes from a place of power and rootedness, which makes it more obvious.
1: What does that do to you as a mother, then? You know, to go from that place of being completely in service to your children, your family, to your work, whatever it is, and then to be in that place
2: with boundaries? Mm -hmm. It's challenging. I mean, I'm a mom of five kids, and they're still quite young, and they have a lot of needs. But I say to them all the time, I am a human being also, (laughs) and I also have needs. And this work is important to me. And I love you and I'm always here for you, but I also am someone who needs to do something in the world. There is sort of a, a truth to that, that I express to them. It's who I am. It's what I need to do. I really feel that I don't have a choice but to do this work. And I think that it increases my capacity. And I think that really deciding what I care about has also eliminated a lot of friction and noise, and a lot of wasted energy. I spend a lot of my time figuring out how to eliminate wasted energy. So eliminate wasted energy on worry, eliminate wasted energy on, you know, relationships that are not healthy, eliminate wasted energy on trying to be perfect. I just decided, I used to be a steel trap mind, hundred percent, no dropped balls kind of girl. And now I've decided I'm going to be a 95% girl because the energy that it takes to get from 95% to 100 is so massive. And once I let that go, I had so much time and space and energy. And so it's not about how many things you take on. It's how many things you decide not to take on. And so when I think about my priorities and how I spend my time with my kids and who I am as a person, it's all – the same. It's all the same person. Mm -hmm. I show up as a mom the same way I show up for my work, the same way I show up for my friends, the same way I show up for my husband. And it's a work in progress. I mean, as we all are, certainly very far from perfect, not just in terms of task perfect, but in terms of showing up emotionally perfect. You know, I'm tired sometimes and I'm crabby and I make mistakes with my kids all the time. But I try and show up as much of myself as myself as I can. In your truth. In my truth. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I feel like that's a really beautiful place to ask you about light work. So light work is something that we ask everyone that comes on to the Sikhar Life podcast to give to our, us and our listeners. And it's a practice or a challenge to help each of us shine our light a
2: little brighter. So I think mine is two part. One is, if you notice yourself thinking about something, just pay attention and think, is this relationship happening only in my head? Is this conversation only happening in my head? Have I ever shared this with anyone? And what might happen if I do? What might happen if I call a friend and I say, hey, I'm struggling with something and I just wanted to tell you? And conversely, if somebody is telling you something, Think about what it might be to just listen to them, to just hear it for what it is, and then maybe say, would you like a suggestion or did you just need to tell me what was on your mind? So give yourself a little push to share what's on your mind, and then conversely, when someone's sharing something with you, create a little bit of awareness that maybe you just need to be a vessel for listening for them. That's a great light work. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: That was a really powerful episode. And I feel like I was personally reminded of how much power we have over our own health just by gathering and holding space for people and especially gathering as women and lifting each other up, especially when we've been taught in so many various ways to not support each other and that there's a lack and not enough to go around. But to really learn how to hold space and lift each other up is incredibly healing and puts you back in the driver's seat of your own healing. I think that was one of the
1: biggest aha moments for me when I started eating sakara and living the sakara life was how much power i had how much power really was in my own hands for my own health for my own thoughts for my own life like we've talked about before eating this way and living this way it doesn't just affect your physical body health but it affects every aspect of your life and taking that first step of realizing that what you put into your body has that big effect just mm-hmm. can ripple out in so many ways
0: Yeah, and also just remembering that every time you sit down to eat, that you're deciding how you want to feel. So you can decide to feel better. You can decide to feel the same or decide to feel worse and using food as a tool to feel like your best self.
1: Yeah. And especially when you feel hopeless, when you've talked to every doctor out there, every healer, everybody remembering that you are the healer can also be really powerful.
0: So today we're hearing from Sarah from New York. Her Sakara story is really powerful. She talks about how she's had a lifelong thyroid condition and thought she had tried everything, worked so hard, exercised, thought she was eating correctly and none of it was working. And it wasn't until she found Sakara that she really started to understand the impact of food on her condition. So Sarah from New York says, I actually started Sakara because I was diagnosed with what has apparently been a lifelong thyroid condition. I had resigned myself to hard work, exercising, and eating nutritiously, never paying off. Thankfully, it turned out a Sakara diet really aligned with the kind of diet shift my endocrinologist said would be most beneficial for ameliorating my condition. Eating Sakara has meant that I have been able to treat my condition with diet instead of medication, which has been really amazing. Yeah,
1: that is amazing. Super powerful. These stories just continue to inspire me and to remind myself that, you know, even on the days when I'm like, I don't know if I can eat another salad, you know, (laughs) you just you need to
0: treat all of it needs.
1: Yeah, you need to be reminded.
0: Yeah, and I think that's our hope with these Sakara stories, right? Is that they get to be a reminder for us, for everyone listening that your choices, your lifestyle choices have an impact on your health. And it's not to say that you have to be perfect because living the Sakara life is all about balance and leaning into that joy factor because that has a huge impact on your health as well. But I find myself, even though, you know, I am a science geek and study nutrition and live this life all the time. Sometimes I even need reminders. And so for any listeners that maybe live a different life and are lawyers or full-time moms or whatever it is, like I can only imagine that you might need extra reminders. So hopefully these stories get to be a dose of inspiration that you deserve to feel like your best self and that we'd love to be a part of that.
1: Yeah. So thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story with us today. We'd love to hear more stories from y'all. So keep sending them our way. It's been great reading them. So keep them coming. If you have a Saqqara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at saqqarastories at saqqaralife.com. That's S A K A R A S T O R I E S at saqqaralife.com. Or send us a DM at Life. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today.
0: And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights.